The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Look, if you would, at Exodus 20, uh, we began last week looking at the Ten Commandments and trying to answer the question, are the Ten Commandments still binding today? Got through two of the four points that I wanted to make, and then I had some other observations that I'd like to make about the Ten Commandments. Let's read them first, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So these are the Ten Commandments, and we were looking at it last time, and first of all, the point that I made is that we have to understand our times. We live in an age of lawlessness. We said in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians 2, the secret power of lawlessness is at work. And that is true. It's been true for 2,000 years. It continues to be true today. Uh, It says everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. So we define sin as lawlessness, and we live in a lawless age. And so we have to understand our times as we're coming to the Ten Commandments. Secondly, I said we had to understand our salvation. First of all, it's important that we know that we are not saved by works of the law. None of us will obey the Ten Commandments sufficient to get into heaven. Even if it were possible that all of your past sins could be immediately wiped out and from this point forward you would be judged on how well you kept this law, you would not make it. I mean, the Tenth Commandment alone would wipe us out. Uh, That is, uh, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's, I think, why Paul focuses on that commandment in particular, because it gets into the heart, doesn't it? 
But uh, if you were to understand, as we're going to look in a moment at Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments and realize it's not simply a matter of murder, but of anger. It's not simply a matter of adultery, but of lust. And if you're going to take that, all of the commandments, right to the uh, nth degree, even at this particular moment, were all our sins wiped out and we started fresh today, we would not make it based on our law keeping. But then you could turn around the other way and say, if somehow we could from this point forward obey all these commandments. What about our past sin? What about all of the things we've done up to this point? So we're, got, we're, we're, we're lost either way when it comes to the law. We are not saved by works of the law. We never have been and we never will be. However, we are saved by the only perfect law keeper that there ever has been, and that's Jesus Christ. He, it says in the book of Galatians, was born under the law. Jesus stood under the law and did so every moment of his life here on earth. He never once disobeyed any of the commandments of God. Never once. And the beauty of it is we are actually saved by that righteousness which he earned by that life of perfect obedience. The righteousness we will stand uh, before God in is, is the cloak of righteousness that Jesus earned by his perfect obedience to the law. Isn't that marvelous? And so Jesus' perfect obedience to the law is what you will stand in on Judgment Day. Isn't that marvelous? To think of Christ's perfect obedience and the fact that that's how God sees you through justification, through imputed righteousness, a gift of righteousness. Jesus never once broke any of the commandments, uh, either through action or inaction, either in his heart or with his body. Never once broke any of the commandments. And so our salvation is earned or, or won by Jesus' perfect law-keeping, his obedience to the Father. But God doesn't leave us there either, does he? Because he is working a work of salvation internally in us, whereby his laws are written on our hearts and our minds. And we are being transformed from within so that in the end we also will be perfect law keepers. And that's a marvelous thing. We are not saved then. In the end, we are not saved by the law, but we are saved in effect back to the law. God converts us, he transforms us, forgives all of our past iniquities through the blood of Christ, puts his spirit in us, the regenerating work of the spirit, and works with us ultimately to the, to the end after glorification that we will uh, keep God's law perfectly. Uh, we will in every respect be conformed to the image of Christ who is the firstborn. And so we will be like him in every way. So we are not saved by the law, but we are going to be saved back to the law, as it says in Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the, according to the spirit. So secondly, we have to understand our salvation. All right? That was review. That's last time. Third thing I want you to understand is the perpetuity of the law. Now, in order to get this, you have to look at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. So take a minute and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5 teaches this very important lesson that the law is perpetual. I'm looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. Let's start actually at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to, the, to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus teaches very plainly there that the law is perpetual until heaven and earth disappear. The, uh, the, the Hebrew letters that God used to write them will be uh, upheld. The smallest letter, a least stroke of a pen. Uh, none of it will disappear from the law. Now, what does this mean? I think it's important for us to understand what does it mean. Well, first of all, it's still here, isn't it? We're still reading it. We're still translating it into different languages and understanding the impact of these commandments. And so already we have 2,000 years of fulfillment of this prophecy. And given Jesus' track record, I imagine it will continue until the end. So Jesus spoke the truth when he said it will still be with us. The question is, what does he mean and why? Until everything is fulfilled, what does that mean? Well, until the redemptive plan of God is fulfilled. So we who are Gentiles come along, perhaps at one point, we were never concerned about the Ten Commandments. Then we get saved, perhaps. And then we wonder, okay, now I learn about the Ten Commandments. What are they to me? Now, some may say, that's not possible. We can't be saved except by the work of the law breaking us down. But I think that the Holy Spirit is able to convict us without us having a full knowledge of the Ten Commandments. I think we as witnesses should be able to use the Ten Commandments, but we don't have to go by these tablets in order to come into a saving knowledge. I think that the Holy Spirit is fully able to bring conviction of sin. Why do I say that? Because I believe that the law is written in our hearts from, to begin with. I'm going to make this point uh, you know, as we go on, but I think that the Lord already wrote the Ten Commandments in our hearts. But once we are saved and we come back to the Scriptures and start to learn and to work through the Scriptures, etc., the Ten Commandments, and in fact all the commandments of God, are going to be continually in front of us. There's a purpose to them. We must understand the role that the Ten Commandments and that all of the commandments played in redemptive history. And so Jesus said the truth that in God's redemptive plan, he's going to keep the law in front of us until heaven and earth disappear. We're going to continue to read it and to understand it. Now, if you continue in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, you will see what Jesus says. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is the um, Ten Commandments plus the, uh, the interpretation and the... Um, the penalty that the Sanhedrin would give on you if you broke the commandment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You see what Jesus does is he gets, he starts with the law and he drives down into the heart. As I was preaching through the, through the Sermon on the Mount, this is what I said. Jesus starts with the external uh, commandment and says, what was the heart intention here? And the real issue is that polluting of the heart that anger brings. And he says, I'm telling you that even if you've never lifted up your hand, to murder another, another human being. You are still guilty of murder in the sight of God if you have ever been angry with your brother. Now, I've said before in, in witnessing um, and also sometimes in preaching that if you were held uh, on trial for uh, murder and you were being brought into the courtroom and some innocent bystander called out to you, their interpretation of the statutes uh, by which you were being held, it wouldn't mean very much to you now, would it? Well, thank you very much for your opinion on the law. Oh, you're going to be set free today. Well, that's great. Now, who are you? But if the judge sitting on your case gives his interpretation of the law by which you're being held, now, I think you ought to sit up and pay attention to that. And I think any lawyer that's getting ready for the case will want to read what that judge has written on that. And that's just at the human court level. 
Wally Dixon, you're here. You can talk to people about that afterwards. I think it's important what a judge says on the case. He's a judge. You can talk to him. But there is one judge who's going to be sitting on all of our cases. According to John chapter 5, God the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus, our judge, is giving his opinion on the Ten Commandments here. And he says it's not simply a matter of external murder. It's a matter of what's going on in your heart. And on that basis, you are going to be judged. And so Jesus upholds the Ten Commandments here, doesn't he? He doesn't say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I tell you that in the kingdom of heaven you may murder as often as you like. You can kill anyone you want. He doesn't say later, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, you may commit as much adultery as you want, now that I've forgiven all your sins. I tell you this, that people live that way sometimes, and they have not understood the grace of God. Jesus doesn't say that at all. He says, you have heard that it was said such and such, but I tell you, I'm looking at your heart. I'm going even beyond the external actions. And so, clearly, this standard of righteousness is being held up perpetually. And I think what Jesus does is he says, you're not going to be condemned by the law. I will pay for that with my blood. But I'm going to transform you until you keep this law the way I intended. I'm going to work in, in you until you have no anger in your heart anymore. I'm going to work in, in you until there's no lust left anymore. I'm going to work the law into you until you keep it the way I intended. And so we have to understand the perpetuity of the law. It's going to be with us permanently. Also, if you would, look at Romans chapter 2. Not only is the written law here permanently, but so also the, the externally written law so that we can read it on a page. We no longer have the tablets on which it was inscribed, but we, st we have the words that were written. But in Romans chapter 2, we see that the law of God was written not just on external tablets, but it was written into the nature of man. Look at Romans 2, 14 and 15. It says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature, very important word there, the things law, required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Do you see that? Their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. Now what do we mean by that? I, I'm telling you that God has built these commandments into human nature. And if you were to go to some of these Stone Age tribes, you're going to see similar laws and regulations to the Ten Commandments. Now in order to understand what law it is that's written in the consciences or the very nature of man, we have to understand, fourthly and finally, the threefold distinctions that uh, scholars have made in the Old Testament laws. It's not every law that's written in the nature of man. For example, the laws of circumcision aren't written there. Uh, neither are the dietary regulations written there. Or any of those oddities that you read in De Deuteronomy or Leviticus, those aren't written there. But I think that these Ten Commandments, in their essential form, are written in the heart of man. I think that's what Paul meant when he said, when Gentiles who do by nature things the law requires, they show that they are a law unto themselves. They show that the law is written in their hearts and their consciences are either accusing or, or defending them. So I think that this is what's talked about. Now what theologians have done is say that there are three types of laws that God gave to Israel. Three types of laws. The first is the moral law, and I think that's reflected here in the Ten Commandments. These are timeless moral principles uh, which I believe are written in the hearts of people, such as you shall not murder, or you shall not commit adultery or steal. These are the things that are written into the hearts. Secondly, there are civil laws by which Israel as a nation state was going to be governed. 
uh, certain rules and regulations about judges and how they were to carry out their office, how kings were to behave, and other things. These are in the book of Deuteronomy again. And then thirdly, you're going to see those ceremonial laws, I think, by which the Jews as a people were set apart as unique and peculiar unto God. Those ceremonial laws included circumcision and uh, dietary regulations and other interesting laws such as tassels on garments and parapets around houses and other types of things which set them apart as a unique people. Those ceremonial laws, I believe, were all fulfilled the moment the Messiah was born. In other words, once Jesus was born as a Jew, born under the law and identified as such, they were no longer needed. And so even in his lifetime, Jesus started overturning them, declaring all foods clean, for example. Very significant that in Mark's gospel, he declares all foods clean while he's still alive. And I think that some people missed this very important and significant aspect of the law, saying that they marked out the Jews as a distinct people and kept them distinct until the Messiah was born. I think this is one of the themes of the book of Galatians, that uh, they were kind of locked up under the law until the Messiah should come. Not until he should be uh, crucified uh, or fulfill his redemptive purpose, but until he would be born. Because Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. Well, that word wouldn't have meant anything except for those ceremonial laws, circumcision being among them. And so once Jesus was born, there was no need for circumcision. If you look in the Old Testament, the circumcision and all of those requirements were very strongly established. And if you violated them, then you were, you were kicked out of the Jewish nation. You were no longer considered a Jew if you broke uh, those laws. But once Jesus came, they were no longer needed. Now you see the threefold distinction of the laws, the moral law and the civil law by which uh, Israel was governed as a nation politically. And then... Uh, the ceremonial laws by which I think Jesus was identified as a Jewish Messiah and the words salvation is of the Jews meant something. Now I think when we're looking at the Ten Commandments we're looking at the first type of law, that moral law. Now m there's many debates about the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath, and we'll do that in one night or maybe two, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about that. The perpetuity and change of the Sabbath and what it means for us today, we're going to get into that. But all of the rest of the laws have been upheld by rep repetition in the New Covenant. Uh, there are things that are still enjoined on Christians, each one of them. Now I want to make a, f a few final comments about the overall significant of the significance of the Ten Commandments and then we'll be done for the evening. The first is that they establish very clearly God's authority as king. In other words, his right to rule. God has always made commandments of his people. One of the things about a king is that he is a lawgiver. And God is a lawgiver. I think it's important for us as witnesses to remember this. God gives laws by which people are to live. And he has the right as king to judge how they have behaved, how they have obeyed those laws or disobeyed them. I think without this it's very hard to witness these days. Uh, even Paul said that the Gentiles by nature have a law inside their hearts. We must obey God's commandments. And we are transgressors. We have broken his commandments. That's what we stand guilty of. And it's that penalty which must be paid by a substitute in order to get us saved. So we must proclaim God's right to rule as a king. Of course we must. And I have a hard time these days sharing the gospel without using this type of approach. God is a king and has a right to rule our lives. Because I just think people don't understand salvation apart from that. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we are commanding people, basically, to repent and drop their weapons of rebellion and come back into a kingdom. And in that kingdom, God will continue to give commands, won't he?
I mean, you're Christians. Hasn't God given you some commands today? Haven't, hasn't he wanted you to obey some things today? It is the nature of being in a kingdom that he's going to continue to rule over you and continue to give laws. He just uh, gives them to us by the spirit who lives inside. We are under the law of Christ. We are not lawless people. We have a king and we must obey his commands. So God gives commandments and he expects us to obey them. Secondly, the Ten Commandments are an expression of God's holiness, an expression of holiness. The scripture says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God will therefore have Israel also to be a holy people. Because he is holy, they must be holy. The Ten Commandments, therefore, are an expression of God's holiness. These laws set Israel apart as a holy and undefiled people. They were to be a peculiar people. They really reveal something, therefore, these laws reveal something of God's heart, of his inner nature. They are a reflection of his own values and of his heart attitudes, what he loves and what he hates, what he chooses and what he rejects. And they continue to be such and will continue to be until the end of the age. They reveal God to us and help us to know who he is. Thirdly, they are an expression of God's love. They are an expression of God's love. The law of God is a great act of kindness to Israel. If you look at the Ten Commandments and the things he is really protecting Israel from, murder, adultery, theft, false testimony, slander, all of these things, covetous, covetousness, and idolatry, and endless, endless work without any break for worship and for restoring and renewing yourself in the image of God and in his worship, these are expressions of kindness and love, aren't they? I know we don't tend to think of them that way, but they really are. It's an even greater expression of God's love that he would work those laws actually within us so that we keep them. But just to state them and to set them out before the people was an act of God's love. And so both Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 contain many expressions of joyful gladness to God for his law. And we should be able to sing these even better than the psalmist. These are the very uh, works that God is working in us that we might be obedient to him. And so we should be able to come along with Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 and say, Oh, how I love your law. Thank you, God, for giving us these commandments. Thank you for protecting us from our own wickedness. Thank you that we don't have to live like lawless people. Those are my modern Psalm 19 type statements. But uh, I'll just read some of these verses. I delight in your commands because I love them. Psalm 119, verse 47. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Psalm 119, 159. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. And Psalm 119, 163. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. And then, very beautifully, we get the same thing in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are radiant. They are more to be desired than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 19, 
a testimony to the written word of God and the law of God and how beautiful it is and how restoring it is. And so therefore the law of God was a great gift to Israel, an expression of his love and his kindness to them. Fourthly, the Ten Commandments are basically Israel's national charter, similar to the Magna Carta or the, the Mayflower Compact or Declaration of Independence, a founding document, a covenant between God and his covenant people. And they were to live by this uh, commandment. The Ten Commandments was the national charter for Israel. It says in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Fifth, the Ten Commandments are the beginning, in my opinion. The Ten Commandments are the beginning of Scripture, the beginning of the written Word of God. I think it all started with the, with the tablets that God inscribed with his own finger. I think up until that point, nothing had been written. Now, others may disagree, but to me it makes sense that God would start that. Don't you think? And Moses wrote Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and he was a busy man before Sinai, but he had tons of time after that, okay? Forty years, to be precise. And so it kind of makes sense that he would write Genesis with all of those years he had wandering with that rebellious people who would not enter the promised land through unbelief. Well, what am I going to do for 40 years? Well, why don't you write the Bible? So that's a thought, and I, I think it's reasonable, it stands reason, uh, to, to reason that if Moses wrote uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that he wrote them during all those years he had of wandering in the desert. And so therefore, it makes sense that God would be first. And if he's not, he will, I don't think, be dishonored by me wanting to put him first, and we'll find out later. Yeah, I think it started with the Ten Commandments, inscribed, it says, by the finger of God on tablets of stone. Now, what that does for me, whether it's true or not, but what it does for me is it says that God wanted his word written down. I'll tell you what, it's so important for us to get this, shall I use this expression, set in stone for us, okay? That God wants scripture in front of us. This is not a temporary thing. I know we're kind of a multimedia people. Some people are saying that Mel Gibson's movie is the greatest opportunity to witness that we've had in 20 centuries or something like that. I don't understand that. I actually have seen a lot of Jesus movies, and some of them have been good and some of them not so good. The Jesus film is being used all over the world and translated into many languages. So I'm not so sure about the rhetoric. I know we're given to saying these kind of grandiose things. And I'm not saying it isn't a good film. I have no idea whether it is or not. But I do know this, that it's the scripture that converts. And God intended that the scriptures would be able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he started the whole process, the writing of the word. And you know why? Because once something's set in stone or engraved in stone, it doesn't change. And that's what God wanted for us, something that would never go away. And therefore, I believe the Ten Commandments are significant. And God willing, uh, in two weeks, we're going to begin a careful study of them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.